Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast where we talk about creativity in medicine. Today, I have with me Jacob Norby. He's a writer living in Boise, Idaho, and you might find him on a trail in, a nearby, in the nearby foothills or typing away in the quietest corner of a coffee shop downtown. So you can learn more about him as we speak today. And also he's written a new book called The Creative Cure. We're gonna talk about that as well. So welcome. Thank you, Dr. Bates. I'm glad to be here. I first discovered you at the Gathering of the Creatives. And that was the yeah. first time I'd gone to that event. And it was really uh, wonderful to be there because I was, I felt like I was among my tribe, you know, lots of creatives. And I don't know how much you know about me, but I'm a psychiatrist, I'm an artist, and I have um, really found that art and creativity to be healing elements in mental mm. health in general. And I, I also feel like it's, it's a path that will help to prevent burnout. If more doctors got more creative, that maybe we would find more joy in our work and in our day-to-day. -day. That's why I think it's really important for me to have conversations with people like you. I'm really excited to talk to you about creativity and what it means to you. Well, I am too, and I'm, I'm as curious about your work and what you've, the connections you've, I love talking to people who have your background and hearing how it, this connection between healing, mental health, other forms of health, and, you know, this idea of creativity, uh, Dr. Bates, I, I started the book before the editors got to it with the phrase, we need to rescue creativity from the arts. Um, mm. And not that artists and, and designers and inventors don't get to have it anymore, of course, but that it's this vital life force. I see it as the true spark of this of the self of how we show up here, the innocence, the power, all of those things. And so the idea that it can be put in this little category over here that says it's for the arts, it's for writers, it's for these people. And many other people walk around saying, and I've heard it thousands of times now, um, I'm just not that creative. And that always hurts my heart. So I totally agree. I think it's in all of us. And we can find creativity everywhere, whether it's gardening or knitting or, you know, inventing something new, innovation, creativity is everywhere. And I think it's, it's that shift in perspective that makes one creative, you know, it's a different way of thinking about something. That's how I see it. I agree. Now, did you come to the gathering of creatives in Santa Fe, the, the one in person? No, I actually, it was the first one and it was virtual. <laughs> we started that event in um, a few years ago in, in Santa Fe. And then of course this last year we needed to change to a virtual experience. But um, mm -hmm. during the, the one that you attended, did you, did you meet Dr. Marie and Booney by any chance? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I went to her workshop. It's really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, just, I mean, so interesting to me to connect with um, medical professionals, um, you know, and then say, okay. And her story for me was moving and fascinating. We met her, um, Randy Davila, the president of Inside Events, um, hosts one every year in Sedona called The Gathering of Shamans with uh, um, Miguel Ruiz, uh, senior, the author of The Four Agreements and different people. Um, that's where we met Marie, and then um, and then we heard her story, and we said, "Okay, we we need to we need to share you." And I would love to hear your story. Like, how did you begin making these connections? Well, I went to. Um, I was always a kid that was drawing or you know making something, knitting, sewing, mm -hmm. whatever, and. Um, but I was also very interested in the sciences and mathematics. And, um, you know, as I was in high school, my high school art teacher is really the one who said, you know, you're so talented, you really should go to art school. 
art college. And I mm -hmm. said, oh, no, no, I want to go to an academic college. And, I, you know, I'm not going to study art. And she said, why don't you just go to Parsons for the summer and, uh, and just check it out. And so I did. And I actually fell in love with Parsons. I went there, um, got a Bachelor of Fine Arts and was a fashion designer, but still had this yearning to be a doctor, this calling. Wow. And so I ended up in medicine. Um, and my journey has circled back again because about 12 years ago, I started printmaking and painting. And I found that it was very healing to me because for so many years I had pushed the arts away and I felt very disconnected. There was a part of me that was really missing. And when I reconnected with art again, I found it to be, um, well, not only did I have a community of other artists, which you know was a beautiful thing, but just the connection to art, I felt more joy and it just, uh, I just realized I can't um, not have art or creativity in my life, that it is so yeah. much a part of me. And so I want to share this with other people. And I especially want to share it with my colleagues as well, because it is very healing. And I, I could go on and on about it, but, you know, <laughs> um, but I won't. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is your show, so I love hearing you go on and on about these things. You know, I, um, a few years ago when I was writing this, beginning the process of writing this new book, I was visiting my brother, who was then the CEO of this tech company that we had started a bunch of years ago, and he was right in the growth pattern of, of it all, and so we were walking through, and he is, he viewed me as this, you know, kind of free-spirited writer guy at that point. Um, I had a whole other life before that, yeah. but he just looked at me, was asking me about, you know, writing and all that. And he's, then he said sort of wistfully, he's like, oh, I love what you do. He said, I don't, I just don't feel like I'm that creative. And that was when that phrase really stood out to me because he's always been my best friend since I was a, a child. And, mm. um, then we walked into his office, uh, Dr. Bates, and he had three screens and he sat down in front of them and there was computer code all over it that looked like the matrix, you know, and he, and when he sat down, I watched his physiology change and uh -huh. he just had this sense of both um, absorption and mastery and he began working away and I watched him lose track of time and I, I touched his shoulder and said, you know, when I'm watching you do what you consider to be non-creative, it's like watching um, a, a classical composer writing a symphony. And we've had many conversations since then, but he told me that day later, he said, you know, that, that conversation we had began to change how I saw my work. He said, yeah. now, I, now I understand that this technology that so absorbs him, uh, that now I understand that that's part of my art. And yeah. he said, also, I'm learning that my relationship with my wife and my children, those, those are artful now too, in different ways. So I, I love, I love watching that happen. Oh, I love that. I love that. It sounds like you found him in a state of flow, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and when he discovered that he could actually go into that state of flow, then he began to recognize it in other aspects of his life. Yes, and you know you're you're a student of the way the brain works and uh, how it's connected to emotions and all of that. I'm curious when you share the creative experience with people, and you know maybe let's let's do some artwork or something like that. I'm curious if you have any information about sort of what happens in the brain when people begin to enter that and give themselves permission to do it. Well, um, you know, there are so many things that go on in the brain, right? I, I think that um, if we want to talk about art in particular, because I do think that creativity encompasses a wider range than just art, right? 
but if we want to think about art, uh, so many people are afraid of it. And they say things like, I can't draw, I can only draw stick figures. And, um, and, and they won't even attempt because they feel they're not good at it. They pass judgment. And so I did these drawing workshops for psychiatrists. And a lot of them would come in with this anxiety and I can't draw, I can't do anything creative. And, um, and by the time they finished the workshop, they discovered that they could draw actually, that it was something that, you know, that they could do. And I think what happens mm. is I always think of, you know, Carol Dweck, who's a psychologist and she talks about mindset, the growth mindset versus the fixed mindset. Mm. And I think what happens in these workshops is that people come in with a very fixed mindset and they leave with more of a growth mindset that discovery that, mm -hmm. hey, there is something I can do that I didn't think I could do, can really make a shift in our perspective. And, and that shift in perspective can extend beyond um, just the immediate and into other aspects of our life too, and may make us more open to other challenges. So. Oh, I. I so agree with that and it's it's interesting you know when um for example meditation uh, or meditative practices or even taking a walk when it's not you know viewed as some sort of competitive self-judging i need to be burning more calories than i am or whatever it might be moving into a different um polyvagal nervous system state um opens up so many different avenues um and, and experiences and actually begins to open up a, a certain kind of a healing. And a lot of times people will approach meditation, of course, and say, I wanna do it right, I wanna do it well. Mm -hmm. and, and also expect to have flashes of inspiration or big ideas happen during the journaling or the meditation or the walk. And sometimes, sometimes that'll happen standing under a shower or driving or meditating. But what I've shared with people is, my growing research and experience is that it's not what happens during, let's say drawing a flower um, or dancing or whatever these things might be, because those, those may or may not be being done well from a, you know, a judgment perspective, but if someone is in it in play and, they, and the adult mind, I think has a really hard time placing value on that. And so it's, easy to say, well, I'm busy, I need to be doing productive activities and to sit down and paint badly or, in a, or meditate badly or any of these things is really a waste of time. And um, inviting people into the realization that what we're doing there is reconnecting the left and right brain and opening up the experience and actually exercising it in a new way. And that the uh, definition-based sort of advance or benefit or value is likely to be seen in other ways later, not necessarily during that time. So there might be this experience later where they go, I don't know why I just started to um, notice that I was more effective at work, or I don't know why, but I suddenly had more ideas happen. And sometimes it can take months of experience like that to begin to trust the fact that this quote waste of time is actually very effective and important. Yeah, yeah. It's not in fact a waste of time, right? That, that you know, um, that learning to do nothing is really important. Exactly, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, I see drawing as a meditative process. So there are a lot of people who feel like they can't, they can't meditate. Um, but drawing, uh, if you, if it's, if you're not looking at it as, a, you know, a way of producing something, but yeah. if you're actually just putting lines down on a page or paint, it could be paint too. Just the process of doing that can be very meditative. You can find yourself in a state of flow. And, um, you know, when we're about to draw something, we really have to observe it or paint as well. You know, if we're looking at an apple, I always, you know, give the example of an apple. 
you think an apple is red, but it actually may have three or four different reds in it. And it may have a little bit of yellow and a little bit of green and a little bit of brown. And so you begin to observe objects more closely. And that close observation, um, especially when you're drawing a line and trying to put that line down on a blank piece of paper, becomes a very meditative process. So. Oh, I love that. I'll be sharing this conversation we're having with you know my audiences, and I would love it if, since you share workshops and things with people, if you were sitting down with people just at the beginning of one of your workshops and saying, this is how to approach drawing, I'm curious how you might give that instruction, you know? Yeah. Well, like you're if, you're, so if you're telling my people who are watching, yeah, like how, how to start. Yeah. Well, usually I start with um, a meditation. And we talk, first we talk about it. We talk about the experience, the fear behind the experience, right? Because a lot of people are fearful. Um, then we might meditate. And then after that, we start with a very basic process, almost uh, like a going back to childhood and just scribbling and just making a mess <laughs> on paper and not yeah. really trying to not really trying to form anything but just to put colors on a page or uh, well, lines on a page because it you know i what i what i tell people is that drawing is a full body experience it's not just your hand um with a pen on paper but it's your entire body that goes into uh, the process of making, creating art or drawing. So you're using most of your senses. And if you are tight and rigid, your drawing is also going to be tight and rigid. And so one has to become loose and relaxed in order to create a more relaxed form on a page. And so, um, so it's, it's, it's really having that connection between your body and how you're feeling. And then that actually gets transferred to the paper or the canvas. Mm -hmm. But it, it's a gradual process. Mm. People really like it. So and curious what you, what you've noticed with people when they move more into that childlike it's okay to scribble, it's okay if it's not perfect. And then what, what, <laughs> yeah. do, you, what do you notice that happens when they start share, showing it to other people where it's safe, I mean, you know? Yeah, well, I think what they recognize is that other people are doing the same thing, you know, and it, they just feel okay about it. It's it, that they, the, mm -hmm. they begin to relax, you know, it's, it's less scary and it becomes more playful. And the only way you become good at drawing is to do it, is to draw. But anybody who can write in cursive, anyone who can, you know, write with a pen can draw because it's just a series of lines. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's so funny you say that. Um, I, I had this experience. So as, as a child and a teenager, I drew a lot and I got to be pretty good at it for that age. Uh -huh. And just recently, you know, I see all these amazing artists on Instagram and different things. And, and here I am, someone who invites people to become more courageously, you know, creative and let themselves do these things. But here I was, and I pulled out a, a sketch pad, Dr. Bates, and began drawing. And then I went back and looked at the drawings that I had done, probably stopped doing it for the most part around age 15. Yeah. And as in my 40s, I'm sitting here drawing and I'm, and, and I'm sitting here going, I'm not even as good as I was then. And then began to just naturally compare it to these unbelievable art pieces yeah. people are sharing. And so I'm, it's fascinating to have that experience myself. And I was really interested what you said about where I, you know, where people stop drawing and where I stopped. And then as a, you know, an adult looking at it and saying, well, this isn't very good will write because I stopped developing that skill at such an age. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, you really do have to practice. Drawing is a practice. And um, there, there are so many people that are way better than I am, right? But if we start comparing ourselves, it'll inhibit us. And yeah. it'll stop us from actually progressing. And drawing is like playing a musical instrument. In the beginning, it's awkward. Um, you know, you might not know how to hold a pencil, just like, you, you know, you may not know how to hold um, the bow. <laughs> and after a while, right. you get used to the process and it becomes easier and less fearful. And when you can get into a state of flow, when you're not thinking about what it is you're drawing on the paper, when you lose, when it's like driving a car, that's when you get good mm -hmm. at it. When you're not thinking about it so much and you're enjoying the process. And that yeah. takes time. As adults, we don't play enough. You know, sometimes I forget to play. Sometimes I just have sure. to pick up, you know, the iPad or start painting or doing something to, to give myself a moment. I've identified three really simple enemies of creativity, I call them. And one is um, socialization, which is just how we learn how to become, you know, adult humans. And then um, rejection or the fear of it. And I think those are closely tied to shame and the fear of shame. Um, of course, Dr. You know, Brene Brown has done so much wonderful work with that. Mm -hmm. And then the third one is traumatic experiences. Um, or in some people's, some people, I'm curious your thoughts on this, Dr. Bates, but some people have such a resistance to exploring their traumatic experiences, um, partly because I think that, that it's sometimes easy to say, well, those people who grew up in those really desperate circumstances, of course they had trauma. But I grew up in a nice house and we always had food to eat and there was, you know, all of those things. Um, so whatever I experienced isn't, doesn't rise to the level of a traumatic experience or an adverse experience. And in fact, many people will work with me and take the, um, the ACEs assessment and they'll say, I don't have any ACEs at all. So, so why am I still broken? You know, and I said, so I'll say, well, first of all, I don't, I don't, I don't agree with you that you're broken. Um, let's be with that. But then we begin to look at some of the more micro adverse experiences. Maybe they were low key bullied um, at school and not to the point where anyone went to the principal's office, but they just, they just endured day after day after year of being told at a formative age, you're not good enough you're not pretty enough, your hair is too red, your hair is too curly, whatever it might be, um, to the point where that became internalized and it became part of their identity. And so that's what I really like to look at with people is how can we get to the roots of these really core beliefs that become self-identified, like accepted as I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy, I'm not safe, I'll be rejected or abandoned, all of those things. And I find that with a really gentle and often playful sort of process, these things can, um, those roots can heal. And um, I find people becoming very surprised after six months or a year and I'll hear back from them and I'll say, you know, I don't, there wasn't one big moment. I just began to feel better in myself. I know I began to notice that I was moving more freely and more confidently in life. Um, or I be, or I wrote, I finished writing this book, or whatever the other piece might be, and to me that is the, um, that's the biggest reward um, in doing any of this work, um, mm -hmm. and it's the greatest reward in my own life. It's not like I've sailed above all those things. Um, mm -hmm. This has been very much a process for me of recovering my own connection, and you know, Dr. Bates, I much like you said, drawing is a practice. The idea of reconnecting with the inner self, um, for me, it has to be a daily practice. It's not something I go to a retreat and, and have a big experience and then it's, it's fixed. 
<laughs> I have to remind my inner self every day, you're valuable, I love you, I, I will make time for you, you know. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's so important. Um, I know for many years, I neglected myself, you know, and mm -hmm. I, I think a lot of physicians do that, that we sacrifice mm -hmm. our own well being. We're just taught to do to do that, you know, till it becomes almost natural. Um, we are well, and isn't it, isn't it surprised? I mean, aren't you aren't you almost rewarded for yeah working 100 hours a week or like you like you're a great doctor if you're killing yourself essentially i mean that's yeah. my impression yeah you're a great doctor if you go to work sick you know and um <laughs> i remember you know one day i i, I might have taken off a day um for having a very severe cold and one of the other doctors said well you know i work through it you know I didn't need to take a day off. So there's this like one upmanship because I somehow, <laughs> I'm a better person because I worked through my illness, you know, right. Um, right. whatever it is. Yeah. So, so then you just lose touch with, with what your needs are because you don't go to the bathroom when you're in surgery, you know, for 12 hours, you just, or you don't eat dinner or whatever it is um, because the patient needs become primary, right? Yeah. And so we get to a point where we just forget who we are. We forget what we like. We forget how to play. We've, and, and we're so disconnected. And, and um, it's just taken me years to undo some of that, <laughs> you know? Wow. And I, it's a constant, you know, it's a constant battle. I have to remind myself, you know, to take care of yourself or do something fun. <laughs> Not easy. I do know. <laughs> I, I know very, very personally what this is about. Yeah. And, you know, I think that, you know, you're an intelligent person. You've studied massively in your lifetime many people i encounter have read so many books especially when they're on a on the hunt for healing you know yeah. start digging into the material and and there's tremendous value in that and sometimes all of this can remain conceptual i can't remember which famous psychologist researcher said most maybe it was jung said most therapy never never goes below the level of the chin people just hold all of the ideas up in their head and they you know so when you said take care of myself get playful again i think many of us the temptation is to read about and talk about self-care or self-love or playfulness yeah. and and it remains this odd little image in our brains rather than actually putting our body through the experience of relaxing and playing and actually the experience of what would it be uh, if I were to take care of myself right now? What, what would, and actually that's part of this journaling practice that I developed over some years, taking, building from the artist's way morning pages. Yeah. Um, and Dr. Bates, I had so many people who were um, resistant to the idea of journaling. And I said, well, I don't care if you journal, let's just throw that out. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's a journal and especially don't do it because I said so. What yeah. I would love if is if you can use these three questions that I've come to find so restorative. Um, and so I've developed a, a creative, it's called the creative self journaling practice and it's three questions and don't call it journaling if we don't want to. First question is how do I feel right now? and just be as honest as possible with that right now. Not how should I feel, <laughs> um, not how do the books say I need to feel if I'm a good person, how do I feel? Um, and the second question is, what do I need right now? Um, and something you've talked about being in surgery, you know, and not you, uh, being able to go to the bathroom or not eating or whatever. I noticed when I began to use this practice that very frequently my answers to those first two questions would be so simple. Mm -hmm. I'm feeling very tired right now. Um, 
what do I need right now? What I need is a drink or I need to pee or I need a nap, you know? And I began to notice this pattern emerging that recovering, healing the connection to this inner self was very much like, um, how would I treat a toddler or a young child who I really loved? How would I treat that young person? If, if, my, if my young, I have three children, they're all grown now, but if, if one of my toddlers came over and said, daddy, I need a drink, um, I mean, I would do everything in my power to do that. But if I were busy, they, would, they might have to ask me three or four times. And by the fourth or fifth time, if I'm on the phone or on the computer, daddy, I need a drink. Well, by the fifth or sixth time, it's not like that voice is going to go away. At some point, something breaks. You know, they're gonna knock something over. They're gonna get my attention. And I think as adults, we forget that we have this inner self that is very innocent and young and it will get our attention. And sometimes that can manifest then in physical symptoms or burnout or mental breakdown, or I've had all of these different experiences in my life to the point now where I realize it's no longer optional. Yeah. If I want to live in a healthy and be more and more free of anxiety and be happy and have good connections like I have to treat I have to reconnect with that self yeah and then the third question I'll just mention quickly is what would I love and especially early on in this process I had so much you know sort of anxiety and pain that I hadn't addressed for so many years I found it really helpful often to ask the, that question how would I love to feel right now Mm. and either how what would I love or how would I love to feel those are sort of magical questions in that after I've given those voices the ones that really are needing my attention space to be heard I've noticed then that some part of the psyche relaxes and says okay mm. now we can look forward and I think that a lot of people try to jump over those first two steps and they do a gratitude journal or they try to do a vision board they try to do something to get themselves into a better frame of mind without, without acknowledging the things that are probably the symptoms that are most important right then. Like, what do I need? How do I feel? You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It sounds, it, you know, it's, it's about paying attention and also being very present. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And oftentimes we're not present with ourselves even. Yeah. I, I think, and I think that that's, I think that that's sort of a enculturated um, experience. I think that we're, we're rewarded from an early age to live more and more in our left brain and be very definition-based and goal-oriented and linear. And so I think that what you just said is a, a result of really spending most of our time in activities or pursuits like that that take us out of the present moment. And I don't want to make that be like some enemy. We definitely need the left brain and those linear processes are important. Mm -hmm. um, I've talked to it, he might actually, he's on the East Coast. My friend, Chris Niebauer, he wrote the book, No Self, No Problem. And he's a neuropsychologist mm -hmm. and he teaches um, at a college out there in Pennsylvania. And we were having this discussion one day and he's done all of this research into left brain, right brain experiences and kind of how the and so we were talking and I you know I was talking about creativity and then he was talking about his experience uh, or his research into the left brain and I said well it sounds to me like what you're saying is that most of us are almost like a bodybuilder who was told early in life only work out the left side of your body and then they reach age 30 or 40 and they find that they're so lopsided they can barely walk and he laughed he said that's exactly what we're talking about <laughs> and he said really what we have to then do is learn how to exercise the other side and it's not because one is better than the other we just need to to reestablish balance you know yeah absolutely i love that i love that analogy yeah, we place a lot of value on on things that are measurable, you know, mm -hmm. um, and the left side. So, in art, art is the first thing to disappear from schools, right? When they want to cut funding, they cut yeah. the theater art, they cut out the painting and the drawing, and we need that balance in our lives. Yeah. So. Okay, so that's something. It and when you're working with people to create art or let themselves, you know, create art, I'm curious what you hear 
in various ways of basically just like, I would love to do more of this, but it'll never pay the bills or some version of that. Like, yeah. I'll, I know I'll never become a full-time or whatever. Do you hear that? Oh yeah, yeah. I've heard that. Yeah. You know what's, uh, I'm also a child psychiatrist. So um, what I love is when I see a child that's a creative <laughs> and there are many. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, I feel that I, can, I almost can predict, you know, that this, this is a child that, that wants to become an artist but maybe they're the only artists in their family and no one else really understands them. And, and they don't see the value in, in, in that gift that that child has. And if I can get a parent to recognize that gift and nurture it, mm -hmm. then that makes me really happy. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Have you had that experience? It's several times. Yes, many times. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. God, I love that. You know, the second book I wrote was called Blessed Are the Weird, um, a manifesto for creatives. And it was really about the not sort of the atypical, the people who self-identified as, you know, somewhat misfit or mm -hmm. whatever, because that was certainly my experience um, as a highly sensitive kid. And you know, very, very creative and artistic. Now, I was raised by people who they, 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 had, they did many things that didn't serve well, um, but they were so loving and they mm. really were supportive of the very first time I walked out at age 10 to the living room and said, I wanna be a writer. They weren't those awful, you know, parents we hear about who say, oh, that's terrible. You'll never make a living at it. No, they were actually quite encouraging. They said, oh, that's wonderful, you know. And then they said, you know, now it's time to brush your teeth and go to bed. And, you know, nothing cruel happened. So I didn't have any traumatic experience yeah. with that. But the messages that I began to receive um, through the rest, that was 10. So, yeah, by the time I was 18, I knew that I wanted to write, but I didn't ever actually start doing it as as this yeah. um, until about age 35. And, and that was directly because I had internalized the message, Dr. Bates, that mm -hmm. writers struggle, creatives, you know, it's the starving artist. And I grew up in a very, very, you know, poor circumstances. And I was the oldest child of six. And so I was determined that I would not be in poverty. I was determined mm -hmm. that I would help my whole family come out of poverty. And in the way that I interpreted that was, you don't have time. And so I remember as a young entrepreneur, you know, really killing myself, um, trying to get wealthy, that, that was in the back of my mind. And, and, it, and that voice got louder and louder by the time I hit 34 and said, I need to make all this money so that I can have time to, mm -hmm follow what I would really love and mm. and that um that I was grateful it was pretty you know distressing and and, and hard but you know the financial meltdown of 2008-9 wiped out the businesses that I'd started and so I was really handed this identity crisis um, I was no longer the CEO and patent holder and all these different things in my business card previously I was um, now just a guy trying to work three or four part-time jobs to you know, keep food on the table. But one of those jobs was at a warehouse where I had many, many hours sitting there waiting for someone to order a box. And so I had lots of time just sitting there and that's where I began to write again. Um, and you know, I'm, just, I'm just so grateful that life handed me an opportunity to, to have the time. Mm. Um, because I wouldn't have given it to myself um, yeah. without that, you know? I totally, that really resonates with me and maybe I needed to hear that because um, I'm getting a little emotional because there's a yearning inside of me to paint, you know, to be a full-time mm -hmm. artist. And mm -hmm. um, I guess I've, you know, felt this way for a very long time but I'm also a physician 
<laughs> and I also have this like, you know, well, this is how I make a living. Um, I couldn't possibly be a full-time artist, you know? And so that, and I also love to write as well. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's very hard when you have that, that pull yeah. and um, those voices telling you, no, <laughs> it's not possible. So I'm slowly, slowly figuring out how to move more in that direction. <laughs> Yeah, well, I I didn't really plan on talking about that, but I'm glad that it resonated. And I I love to invite myself and other people who are feeling trapped by their identity in some way, and not to attack the identity that they've built. Like even even people who are feeling really stuck. Um, and not, you know, people who are feeling stuck in a career, let's say, or all of these things. And um, sometimes they're so full of self-judgment. I've wasted all of this time and how can I ever recover that? And um, mm. I didn't develop my talents in these ways when I was young, when I, could, when I had all these choices. And now I have debts and obligations and children and all these things. And mm. one thing I love to do is is just say, first of all, I know that life finds a way and even the acknowledging of yearnings um, has magic in it. Just the, because for so many years, Dr. Bates, I didn't, I couldn't even look in that direction. Mm -hmm. To do so was so scary. Yeah. That sounds strange to me now even, but going back to my 32 year old self, I was so exhausted. I was stretched so thin by the obligations of this life that I had created and that I felt like I had to, to carry out. It's like, I won't be successful until I've sold my companies for $10 million and then I will. So I was waiting to buy my freedom. And yeah, 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 yeah. I get it. A lot of times, I, you know, right. And so when I sit with people, I say, first of all, why don't, why don't we just really acknowledge what you've been up to and thank yourself for look at how look at how resourceful and you know you just have so much evidence i'm not talking to you now i'm talking to mm -hmm. we but there's so much evidence of how you have constructed a life and the fact now that you are sitting with that and say i would like to see something different you have that much all of the ability that you had to create this life you have the ability now to then gently and kindly begin to bring it into more alignment and i think that people sometimes hear stories of really radical change and even my own story um when i would tell it years ago sounded really radical and people would say well do i need to burn my life down do i need to lose everything like you did and go through this whole thing and i'm like oh first of all please don't if you can help it that sounds it's really a, a, a distressing experience but how can we begin to take even a small step in the direction of you know um and that's what i love is being gentle and sometimes sometimes some people and personalities and various things do need to do something more drastic but i find that even that's usually a narrative like taking a step in the direction of mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what would be one step toward that and then suddenly people feel relieved and that actually then lowers the barrier so well no i can't quit my job today and do all this but i could take one step toward doing yeah. this beautiful thing that I oh, do, yeah. you know yeah yeah, I know. I have. I clearly pushed the button there. I got very excited. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's it's great though. I mean, there is a lot of joy in helping people connect with that yearning, right, or that creative side of themselves. Um, and you know, I I have some young people um, in my practice who. Uh, one of one of them wants to be an opera singer, but has been rejected so many times that now 
now um, she wants to do something more lucrative, right? And, and not, not do yeah. the thing that she loves anymore. And I think there are a lot of people who are, who give up on their dreams, you know, yeah. and uh, end up doing something that, that they're not happy with. And they don't understand why they're anxious and depressed all the time. Right. Right. You know, you know, I, I also just feel like it's important to say here that, um, especially in the early stages, like people will look, you know, probably at you in these workshops and your professional life and all that. And, you know, it's like, oh my God, um, you know, it seems so fully formed. Or they'll look at me with a few books written and doing the work that I do. And, and they'll say, oh my God, you know, it must be wonderful to earn a full-time living doing these things. Yeah. And, it, and it is, but, but what I have noticed, Dr. Bates, is that so many people internalize the message from some popular business, you know, entrepreneurial voices out there, you know, hustle 24 seven or 25, eight or yeah. whatever, or, you know, the grind <laughs> and all of these messages. And none of that sounds good, but none of it sounds fun, by the way. No, but I've also noticed with a lot of people who want to make a, a break toward what they would love. Um, I've had several clients who came to me and said, I'm going to quit my job and be a full-time writer. And I'd say, wow, that's a big step. What, tell me what, what you've been doing. Like, what have you been writing? Like, oh no, I'm, I haven't written anything yet. Um, I haven't developed any kind of a, you know, path yet. It's just, I just want to do that. And so then we, we then we'll go into discovery. Do you have the financial resources to do that without, you know, starving or do you, or are you willing to downsize your life and, and work, you know, part-time jobs or whatever to support that. Mm -hmm. And, um, Part of my point here though is I've noticed that a lot of times people who try to put their art under financial pressure too early, mm -hmm. um, they, it's, like, it's, like a, it's like a tender plant <laughs> that is trying to grow its roots and push up through the soil. And if they try to subject, if, I mean, none of us would think I'm gonna, I'm gonna plant some tomato plants in the spring and in a week, I'm gonna have enough tomatoes to actually support my physical body full time from those tomato plants. I mean, that's, that's, that doesn't match nature, right? <laughs> and I wanna encourage people who are thinking about, you know, to just be so patient. Yeah. And, you know, the, the money part, you know, I, I, I don't like fluffy statements like, you know, do what you love and the money will come. I mean, I, I don't like that because sometimes people get very discouraged when they, start doing what they love and the money doesn't come you know right away yeah. or not enough yeah. um but if if be so patient and 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 protective of this tender growing artful self and mm -hmm. just say i i know this will take some time mm -hmm. um and and you know what some people have told me what a relief it was to discover that they don't care if their artful projects ever make them any money at all. They said, mm -hmm. I had this idea that only the only way to be a successful artist was to have it give me a full-time income. And they said that that made it lose all of its joy. Yeah. And yeah. so I find that many asking people to recover their artfulness sometimes means unhooking the financial piece from it altogether for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you know, um, what helped me was to take one day, one afternoon a week to, to paint. That's what I did for many years. And, um, mm. and now I have a friend who we meet at least once a month and we create art together, you know? Mm. So it's just, you know, dedicating time to whatever craft it is that you are interested in or want to do. Did you have a hard time with that at first, like actually carving out a, a whole afternoon a week? Yeah, I did. Um, well, it was more like an evening, not, not an afternoon. So it was after work um, in the okay. evening. And uh, there were many occasions where my daughter would say, mom, I think you need to go do some art. I think you need to go paint. <laughs> 
as I would. Yeah, you're a nicer yeah. person when you paint. <laughs> right. And, um, you know, I used to think, oh, she just wants me to get out of the house. But I, but she was absolutely <laughs> right. You know, I was, um, I was much happier. Yeah. I was much happier when I could go and paint yeah. for an evening. And, you know, I started entering shows and galleries and juried shows and things like that. So, so just from that one evening, I amassed a lot of work and, um, and so it was very fulfilling to me. And I think that that piece is very important that you don't have to quit your job. You can still do what you love for just a few hours a week or once a month if that's all you can do right now. Yeah. I really love that. I like take it out of the binary choice. It's either all the way or it's nothing at all and say, well, what, like, like you just said, once, once a week or once a month, suddenly we're taking a small step toward, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I could talk with you about this for, for more hours. And thank you so much for inviting me to share with you and your, and your people. And I look forward to sharing this episode with, uh, with my audiences too. I know they'll love to, to meet you that way. Oh, well, it's been wonderful. So thank you so much. Um, I loved it. So I'm happy to speak with you anytime. And uh, it's been a joy meeting you. Well, you too. And thank you. Um, and where can people find you? So, Well, probably the easiest is um, my website, which is jacobnordby.com. A lot of people leave out the D, so it's, they go to Nordby, so nordby.com. And there's a, you know, that, that creative self-journaling practice we talked about, that, that's on my site as a free download for people to yeah. grab. So I invite you to do that. And, some, and if you have a hard time spelling Jacob Nordby, um, the, you can go to creativecurebook.com, which has excerpts and the link to my site is also on that page. So either of those sites will, will get you there. Okay. Wonderful. All right. Well, thank 